As you sit down, you might want to pick up your Bibles again and turn again to Psalm 76. It's on page 588 in the Pew Bibles. And there's also an outline of where we're going in in the talk tonight. It's on the the back of the sheet that says Songs for Communion. And so if that might be helpful to you, uh, then do use that. Well, Paul's already asked the question tonight, how big is your God? It's a question that I've been asking myself this week as I've read and reread Psalm 76. How big is my God? Is my God like the God that is portrayed in Psalm 76? Is he that big? How big is your God? My difficulty when I asked the question of myself was, oh, how do I answer it? How do I assess how big my God is? How do I know if I've got a small view of God? Whether it's the view of God that he has portrayed as in his word, as he's revealed himself to us. Well, one thought I've had is you can assess how big your God is by asking, why am I a Christian? Or why do I come to church? You see, you might say you come to church because your friends come to church. You get to go on house party. You get to meet with people that you like. So how big is your God? A God who gives you friends? Or you might say you are a Christian. You come to church because the Christian life is a good life to live. We heard this morning that Anglican clergy have a high life expectancy, apparently. And so is your God a God who gives you a good life, a long life? And so following God is the way to go. Or maybe you're a Christian because you've assessed the intellectual and the rational reasons for God and you're convinced that it's the right thing to believe in. That God makes sense. It's intellectually reasonable. So how big is your God on that view? Or maybe coming to church gives you a sense of the spiritual in life. A sense of being. It makes you feel big. It lifts you up. A sense of perspective. How big is your God on that view? Or you might even be here tonight and not consider yourself a Christian. You don't really know how big God is. Well, hopefully tonight you will see how big he is. In some of the aspects that we see in this psalm. How big is your God? I think it's a good question to ask ourselves and one to keep in the back of our minds as we look at Psalm 76 because in this psalm we get a glimpse of how big God is. And the first thing that we see that God is a God who is known. We see that in verses 1 to 3. See the way the psalm begins? I think this is quite extraordinary. I wonder whether you felt that as it was read. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. God is known. It's quite a staggering claim that God is known. I once listened to a radio program with a a prominent Christian leader who was asked the question, do you know God? And that man could not answer the question. You see, for him, we as human beings are too small to consider who God is. Our brains are just not big enough. We don't have the capacity to handle something that big, he said. And yet the Bible clearly says it here. God is known. And Asaph, who wrote this psalm, it goes on to show us that God is known through his actions. You see it in verses 2 and 3. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion, talking about Jerusalem. 
There he broke the flashing arrows, the spears, and the swords, the weapons of war. Asaph is reflecting here on a time when God was mighty in battle, when he fought for his people, when he defeated the weapons of war, a time when he saved his people. You see, God is known through his actions for his people. God is the one who makes himself known through his actions. You see, it's not that we have to use our brains somehow to think up God. No, rather God comes to us and reveals himself to us. He shows himself to us so that we might know him. And in particular, we see here he is known through his actions to save. We're not told what Asaph is thinking about, what time in Israel's history As I read this, I thought of Gideon, who went to fight the Midianites. He he amassed a huge army to go and fight them, and God whittled it down and whittled it down until he had 300 men left. And these 300 men vanquished the Midianite army, which was described as being as thick as locusts. You see, Gideon was told to go into battle with these words, Get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. You see, God acting for his people. Or then there's King David who won battle after battle as he secured the nation, he secured the land so there was peace for God's people there. David won victories with the Lord's help. It said the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. The Lord gave him victory. You see, God on many occasions fights for his people, wins for his people on behalf of his people, saving them. God is known in Israel. And you see, this sets up a principle which we see uh, continuing right through the Bible. God is known through his action to save people. You know, at the beginning of John's Gospel, we read some remarkable words uh, where it says, No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. You see, Jesus Christ came to make God known. And what did Jesus Christ come for? Well, he came to save his people. He came to save his people from those things which stood against him, from the enemies of death and of sin, of the devil. You see, through Jesus we can know God. We can understand God. Jesus said to Philip, those who have seen me have seen the Father. And so as we come to know Jesus, we come to know God the Father. Do you know, it's why we place such a high value here on studying God's words. Because through those words, we come to understand God more. We come to see Jesus better. We come to see the God who has revealed himself to us. God who has reached down to us to make himself known. And in Jesus, we do see that heart and the purpose of God. We see God's love. We see God's determination to save his people from their sins. And we see it ultimately on the cross as Jesus dies for us. And that's what we will celebrate as we come to communion. The death that Christ died to save us from our sins. God acting in his world to save so that he might be known by people. You see, we can know how big God is because he has revealed himself to us. He has shown himself to be a big God. 
Well, the second uh, verse of the poem shows us a God who is breathtaking. And we see it in verses 4 to 6. Verse 4 again describes God who is known. He is described as being resplendent with light. He is the shining one. Now you have to admit that most people don't shine. But here is one who is magnificent. One who shines, who is brilliant. And then the next line develops that picture of God further. He is more majestic than mountains rich with game. Now you have to admit that is a little bit odd when you come to it. He is more majestic than mountains rich with game. It's not a picture of a big God, you might think. It literally, what it's saying is, it's a mountains of prey that he is more majestic than, or more mighty than the mountains of prey. And I think the best explanation here is to see these mountains of prey would be where the predators were as well. You wouldn't go to these places where there were big cats or wolves or bears which were going to maraud and kill you. It was a dangerous place and yet God is mightier than those places that humans fear. I was having dinner with some friends this week and they told me of it's such a place. And they have a friend who lives in Darwin in Australia and every bit of water there is inhabited by crocodiles and you don't go swimming, you don't paddle in the water there for fear of being eating. Uh, the saltwater crocodile, or the salties, I think as Australians affectionately call them, apparently are about five metres long on average, and they are the most fearsome uh, predator, uh, the most likely to kill and eat a human, apparently. You see, you could translate the second half of verse 4 as that God is mightier than the croc-infested waters of northern Australia. You see, it's a picture of God being a mighty warrior, going in the places that people fear to go. He is fearless and to be feared. And you see what happens when people encounter him? You see it in verse 5. Valiant men lie plundered. They sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hand. And here are the valiant men. People who were the the strong men of the armies, the strong warriors, the brave-hearted, the special forces of the day, men who fear nothing, who stride towards the battle without even a hint of fear. These brave-hearted warriors see God and they stand immobile. Their breath is taken away from them. Their ability to move is gone. They can't even reach down to pick up their machine guns. They stand appalled at the sight of God. Even the horse and the chariot, we see in the next verse, stand still at the rebuke of God. God is breathtaking. God brings stillness to those who are battling against him. And you know, this is a great change in the Psalms because throughout the Psalms you see the enemies of God battling against him, struggling against God, fighting against God, and God comes and confronts them and stands there. And there's stillness. They stand immobile before God. How big is your God? Does he compare with what God says about himself here? You see, God is not some curiosity to be debated about, not some intellectual construct. 
He is a living and active and powerful and mighty God. He is almighty. Not to be trifled with, but rightly to be feared. But the psalm moves on and we see God who is judged in the next verse, in verses 7 to 9. You see, God the judge is seen here. See verse 7? You alone are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounced judgment. You see, God will come and judge the earth. And there will be great fear before God as he comes to judge all people. God will deal with all people according to how they have dealt with him. And God's judgment will be heard. And notice what happens in response to God's judgment. You see it in the second half of verse 8. The land feared and was quiet. The land feared, or the earth feared and was quiet. You see, people have been stilled in their fighting against God in this psalm. And now they are silenced. They were stunned into inactivity, but now they are silenced. In the face of God's judgment, there is nothing to be said. Nothing to be said, for it is right and good. And everyone there will see the rightness in the justice of God. They are rightly judged by him, and there is silence before him. I don't know about you, but I found this week's news quite fascinating, particularly in relation to the riots and the looters. As many of those now are coming before the courts to face their judgment for their crimes, there is anything but silence in the face of it. Now, see, on the one hand, you have those people who are saying the sentences are too long. On the other hand, you have people who are saying the sentences are not long enough. And people on both sides are debating the rightness of these judgments. And yet when God comes to judge, there will be no voices clamoring to have their say about what he says. All that will accompany it is silence. Silence before the awesome God as he judges the world in righteousness and truth. And God will judge those opposed to him. And yet there's another side to God's judgment. Did you see it there in verse 9? It says, When you, O God, rose to judge, to save the afflicted of the land. I think we often miss this in God's judgment. God's judgment is on the wicked, on those opposed to him, but it's also to save those who are afflicted in the land. God's judgment will bring salvation for his people, for those who are lowly, it could be translated, of the earth. He saves the poor of the earth. He saves his people. And God's judgment will mean salvation for his people. You see, there's a real comfort in this. When God judges, all will be made right. And God will save his people. How big is your God? Is he a God who is able to hush the whole world as he judges all perfectly and rightly? Well, the last thing to see in this psalm is a God who cannot be ignored. Now, the last verse of this song of Asaph, in many ways, is quite chilling. You see, you see, it says that God cannot be and will not be ignored forever. Either you submit to him willingly, or you will be made to submit to him. 
You see in verse 10, those who continue to oppose God, what will happen to them? It says, surely your wrath against men brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Now the translation here suggests that it's God's wrath that's been spoken of. And yet I think the English uh, standard translation might be better where it says, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. You see, it's not speaking of God's wrath here. It's speaking of human wrath against God, of those who oppose God. And their wrath will be turned to God's praise. And this is how one commentator expresses it. Even human beings in the momentum of their fury are compelled to acknowledge God when they see him. Even human beings in the momentum of their fury are compelled to acknowledge God when they see him. You see, those humans who are fighting against God will be compelled to acknowledge him as God. Human beings will submit to God even if God makes them. You see, God is supreme. God is king. God is one who cannot and will not be mocked forever. And those who mock him and ridicule him now will not be able to do so forever. There will come a time when all will have to bow the knee before this God and acknowledge that he is God. People will do this before the one who is so breathtaking and awe-inspiring as our God. And what's your attitude to God? Is God someone that you hold at arm's length? Someone you say is not really real. He has no power. Do not be foolish tonight. Do not be foolish because God is real. God is awe-inspiringly huge. And he will not be mocked forever. He will submit, make you submit. He will judge you. And that, can be any, that can't be anything but bad. You do not want to face the wrath of God. And yet, as we've seen, God is one who is known by his people. He is a God who saves people. You see, because there is another response that can be made. You see, the second response to God is to submit to him willingly. You see it in verse 11. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. This is a picture of subdued armies coming and offering their allegiance to the new king. Offering their service to the one who has conquered them. Pledging their allegiance. You see, the right response to the awe-inspiringly huge God is to come and submit before him. Offer our allegiance to him. You see, that's the right response, the reasonable response before our awe-inspiringly huge God. Now it says, it says in Psalm 2, Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, the right response before such a God is to take refuge in him, submitting before him. And the wonderful thing is, he's the place of safety. He's the one who acts to save his people. The one who, when we submit before him, we know he will protect and save and keep. The wrong response is to continue fighting against him. 
And we have great confidence in submitting before this one. Uh, we do so knowing that he saved us. That he acted for his people. Uh, that he accepts those who seek refuge in him. He forgives those who come to him in, forg- in repentance. You see, even though all of us have fought against God, he has saved us. He has died to save us. Again, we come to celebrate that tonight as we have communion. That as we take refuge in him, we know for sure that we have the forgiveness of sins. So you see in this psalm, we are presented with an awe-inspiring God. A God who is known through his actions. A God who is breathtaking. His his enemies are stunned into inaction. A God who who is judged and before whom the world is silent. And a God who cannot be ignored forever. You see, take refuge in God. Take refuge in God. Take refuge in Jesus Christ, God's Son, who came to die for us. Ask him for forgiveness. You see, we have a God who is awe-inspiringly huge. Let me say, as you think about this, just see... How often when we present the gospel to others, as we evangelize others, it is very anemic. Because we tell people how good the Christian life is. It's the best life to live. We we convince people that Christian living is the best way to live. And I'm not saying that it isn't. But the Christian message is far greater than just a lifestyle choice. The Christian life is coming before a God who is awe-inspiringly huge. You see, the gospel, it tells people about this God, that he is real and he will not be mocked forever, that he has sent his Son to save us from our sins, from our rejection of him. You see, the gospel is enormous. It presents us with an enormous God who we come before. You see, because if, if people come to Christian life to think it's a good life to live, why will they continue in their Christian service? Well, they will give up when life gets tough. Because that's not what they signed up for. Now, why do they go to small group week after week if a God is just a God to give us a good life, a pain-free life? And so when it's dark and wet and snowy outside, why do we continue coming to church? When there's football on TV, why do we go out to small group? When we're mocked for telling people about Jesus, why do we continue doing that if God is someone who merely gives us a good life? You see, God is enormous. And he is the one that we serve. And that sustains us in our service. Now, we could say similar things for other reasons about coming to church. Now, when we tell people that Christian belief is reasonable, it's more than just an intellectual argument. You see, God is awe-inspiringly huge. Or if you come to church because it makes you feel better, it gives you a sense of something other and lifts you a little bit. It's more than just a feeling to have coming before this awe-inspiringly huge God. You see, a God in those views, and lots of times when we present the gospel, is one who comes to meet our felt needs. He meets my need for friendship or uh, my need for happiness or acceptance 
or a good life. But in this psalm, we are presented with a God who is bigger than just me. You see, the big question is, rather than what can God give me, the question that we should be asking is, what does God think of me? How does God view me? You see, if you've not taken refuge in him, then you're an enemy of God. One opposed to him. Or if you are one who has become a Christian before him, asking for his forgiveness, taking refuge in him, he sees you as one of his people who he will protect and keep. See, what? how big is your God tonight? How big is the God that you serve? You see, serve a God who is awe-inspiringly huge. Submit before him. Come to him and receive his forgiveness. The way is open for all to come. Will you join with me as we pray? Great God of heaven, we thank you that you are an awe-inspiringly huge God. And Father, we want to admit tonight that often we have a view of you which makes you small, which seems to make you a little bit insignificant, a mere add-on to our lives. And Father, we are sorry for that. Father, help us to consider you and to know you as you are, as you have shown yourself to be in your word. Father, help us to grow in our awareness of who you are and how big you are. And Father, help us to continually take refuge in you, to trust in you for salvation. And Father, we pray for those here who don't know you tonight and who continue to struggle against you and hold you at arm's length, that they may take refuge in you and find the great joy of believing in you and trusting in you for salvation. And so, Father, we pray that you would expand our knowledge of you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.